This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. Good afternoon. Welcome to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik. It's Friday afternoon. It's our Doctor in the House segment. My co-host joining me via Zoom, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. How are you, George? I'm very good indeed. Oh, like the whole country, we are in euphoria after all that uh, suspension and tension, right? Yeah, so um, it's almost a week since the 15th general elections. And you're right, it's been a week of so much turmoil and political drama. And now we finally have our 10th Prime Minister. The next wait, I think, is for the uh, lineup of the new cabinet. And so on our show, we are looking at the health portfolio, of course. And I think uh, it comes, it should come as no surprise that the new health minister will have quite a huge task ahead you know, bringing the country uh, out of the transition uh, from the pandemic, reforming the healthcare system as well to be resilient for future shocks. So joining us on the show today, um, my co-host from another show, <laughs> Azro <laughs> Mohamed Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. Let's talk about, you know, what we want to see from the next health minister. Uh, and, uh, you know, we are calling out for our listeners to weigh in as well. What do you want to see the next minister prioritize? Um, you know, even send us your wish list. Who do you think should be appointed to the position? You can call us at 03-777-32900. You can also WhatsApp 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. How are you, Azrul? I'm doing fine, shall we? I think I should have bought some shares uh, yesterday. <laughs> Would have made a little bit of money. <laughs> <laughs> Economy uh, looking like... Maybe it's too early days to tell, it but, um, you know, what that, that's the kind of signs, early signs we want to see at least. Uh, but turning our eyes uh, back to issues of health. Um, let's uh, dive right into the big question. Uh, I know you won't have any answers, probably, but, um, you know, looking at who could be appointed uh, to the portfolio. Uh, what kind of background uh, would serve our next health minister well? And um, does he or she, uh, hopefully a she is on the cards as well, have to have a medical background? Well, shall we? You know, uh, the next health minister has some very uh, large shoes to fill. Uh, Dr. Zulkifli and uh, Kairi Jamuddin and even Adam Baba, Dr. Adam Baba in the past has... Uh, carved out their own uh, mark on the health portfolio. And I think one thing that we've learned from the COVID-19 uh, crisis is that health is something that you cannot just take for granted or, or just shell out to to fulfil a political need. We need uh, for the next health minister to be somebody who's obviously competent, intelligent, quick on their feet, and most importantly, deal with a steep learning curve. And this is going to be something that we are needing to address because we are not just looking at the next five years. We are looking at least for the next 10 to 15 years in dealing with four major issues that are facing uh, the Malaysian healthcare uh, system. And, and, you know, the Galen Centre Health and Social Policy, we highlighted it prior to the general elections and looking at the manifestos, we identified four main issues, which includes healthcare financing, non-comical diseases, mental health, and the aging population. So there's a lot of things that have been initiated by the previous uh, health minister. They are still on the table and they should be able to be continued 
by the next administration. But on the question of what kind of background do they need to, what kind of skills or qualifications do they need to bring to the table? Well, you know, some of our best health ministers in the past were not doctors. So I would say that, again, we do not necessarily need somebody uh, who is having that background, but it would help, definitely. But she or he, and I totally hold out the same thing as you, Shahid, no reason why it can't be both, uh, either one. And for us to be able to have somebody who is intelligent, competent, and most importantly, able to deal with the, the issues and to most importantly, be willing to listen to the people on the ground, especially the healthcare professionals and the caregivers, the people who work in allied health and patient all these support different groups as well. Definitely, mm. and especially patients, and mm. we, which affects them, you know, and we need a person who is willing to listen. Yeah, George? Well, I totally agree. But on the contrary, shall we? Sometimes it is counterproductive actually to have a doctor because sometimes doctor can be a little bit too emotional and then also too personalized in their approach and then don't look at the big picture. But one question I would like to ask is that you highlighted something quite important is that for the last four years, for example, we have so many ministers and Class, traditionally, this is done every five years. And all these um, policies, they don't really get to see the light of you know, materializations before the next uh, white paper comes up. How do we overcome that? Well, definitely, this is an ongoing problem. Uh, in the past, we've had continuity simply because somebody was able to fulfill their term. The ability to be able to carry out policies is determinant upon the person being able to complete the term in which they're being appointed to. It's impossible to ask people who were appointed to the job and then suddenly it gets abruptly shut. And, and this is where it goes back to the stability of the government. And we're hoping that with this unity government, and now we're hearing that there's now a supermajority, maybe it will confer a, an amount of stability that will enable us to see the start, uh, the uh, deployment, and the implementation of the policies that have been uh, formulated by the previous health ministers. And this is something that we are hoping to see carry through in this upcoming administration. Mm. So speaking of the previous health ministers, um, let's quickly, you know, maybe have a report card, so to speak. What did they do well and uh, what did they miss out on, perhaps, that needs to be picked up by the next minister? Oh, yo, really, I shall hear. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is where, you know, I, I would, if I were to... to, to look at where the different health ministers, they, as I said, you know, they've all made their mark. And unfortunately, we didn't see the uh, fruition or the uh, ending of some of those uh, uh, in uh, initiatives. And this is something that we hope will be able to be corrected here. If I were to pick two uh, policies that have serious implications towards uh, Malaysia's healthcare, and most importantly, to be able to kind of have the effect that we want to be able to have, uh, I would hazard that there would be two that we should be able to see uh, come up from this new administration. The first one is the health white paper. There's been a lot of effort, a lot of, of uh, work, and a lot of contributions towards looking at introducing health reforms into um, the Malaysian healthcare system, which were identified by the white paper. A lot of people uh, contributed a lot of their, their forward thinking and hope, most importantly, into seeing changes 
much needed changes that predate the previous health minister mm-hmm. all the way back to 20 years ago. Yeah. And it was reflected in the health white paper. So we're hoping that the next minister, whoever she or he may be, will be able to bring that white paper out and to be able to table it in parliament or to publish it uh, so that we can use the recommendations from that white paper. There's no point having a document which nobody is able to see or reference that paper mm-hmm. because it hasn't been made public. Mm. The second one, and this is not going to be very popular for some people, is that a lot of work went into the tobacco bill. And I would say that if you think back towards the discussions that occurred towards the end, a compromise, a middle ground, a bipartisan approach was found with regards to this particular bill, which will have serious implications for the health and well-being of Malaysians for decades to come. We should be able to see this bill to be tabled in Parliament and hopefully passed because this is something that we need to be able to invest in. And most importantly, I have to emphasize this, this is a low-hanging fruit simply because it is a clear example of how different parties from different points of view, different ideologies will be able to work together to produce a multi-partisan, it's not bipartisan even, it's multi-partisan bill that's able to be then voted on and passed. And it is, again, already on the table. It, the work has already been done. Yeah. It, all it needs, It's an easy win. It's yeah. an easy win. You can actually table it in Parliament uh, in the next session and vote on it, and it's already there. And it's a clear example of how we can all sit down uh, at the table and work together to produce something that has benefit. Yeah, I do notice you didn't answer my question exactly about, you know, <laughs> what the previous ministers uh, perhaps didn't do so well. But uh, I, I, I want to move past that and pick up on the the, the idea of multi-partisan support. Um, do you think that we, with the kind of make-up of the next administration, will we actually be able to push through some much delayed health reforms because we could potentially get that kind of uh, support, uh, you know, across the room? I think so, shall we? You know, one of the things that, that was uh, a huge challenge in the previous administration was the uh, opposition towards policies that were being uh, proposed that may not have the full range of opinions, insights and contributions into that particular bill, legislation, regulation and so forth. This time around, we have a chance to put forward uh, uh, initiatives, interventions that have the gamut of different uh, uh, opinions and uh, most importantly, uh, interests that can be reflected. And therefore, there's better ownership this time around, I think. And definitely when we look at some of the tough, uh, eye-watering reforms that need to be taken, it needs to have as much ownership as possible. And this is where I think, uh, you know, things like the contract doctors issue, more funding for healthcare, uh, investing more in our infrastructure, investing more in our healthcare professionals. A lot of these things require broad support. And I think in this time around, the climate could be better. And don't forget a crisis that, two crises that are happening right now, which is the non-communicable disease crisis and the aged care crisis that are both ongoing and we're totally uh, either ill-prepared or failing miserably, and an emerging one, which is mental health, which we haven't really fully addressed. So a lot of these issues are on the table. The next health minister will have an in-tray that's going to be taller than the size of, uh, taller than his filing cabinet, <laughs> and he's going to have to prioritise. And 
that is going to be the the tricky part there. The first 100 days is traditionally the way you measure achievements and so forth. So what is going to be in his first 100 days is going to be the big question because everybody from the smallest NGO all the way up to big interest groups are wanting the health minister's attention on their issues. Yeah. George, hang on to your thoughts. I, I, I sense that you have something you want to ask. Even George will have some interest <laughs> there wanting the health minister to address. Yes, Definitely. for men's health, I'm sure. Uh, but we'll go for a quick break first. Um, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist for our Doctor in House segment. We're speaking today to Azro Mohammad Khaled, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy about what we want from the next health minister. Send in your thoughts. Um, what do you want to see the next minister prioritise? Who do you even think um, should be appointed to the position? Who are your favourite candidates in mind? You can call us at 03-7733-2900. You can also WhatsApp 018-789-8899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. Stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shawik, and my co-host for the Doctor in the House segment, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. The makeup of the next cabinet, indeed, that will be interesting, and that's what we're looking at for our health show today with Azro Mohammad Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. The health minister who will take on the role after uh, Kairi Jamaluddin, um, and before him as well, very quick successions of Dr. Adam Baba and Dr. Zulkifli Ahmad, right? Um, George, you had a question in mind before the break. Right. Obviously, you know, um, Azra mentioned about the tobacco bill. And it, what happened if the next minister actually didn't think this should be on the top of his pile, actually should start something completely? I mean, you highlighted like 10,000 things as a Idohobi approach. What happened if he thinks mental health should be the priority and then started focusing on it? Because, of course, it has to be kind of one thing at a time, right? And what happens with that paper? Because all that effort put in, will it just be fizzle into nothing? You know, this is precisely my concern, George, because the white paper captures a lot of the forward thinking, a lot of the brain power that was in that conference, uh, in, in that conference hall in PWTC several months back, uh, practically f sizzled the air, you know, with a lot of ideas and hopes and, and aspirations and visions for a new healthcare system for Malaysia. And the thing is, the thing is, when you look at it, we need to be able to see quick achievables. We're looking at the gauge for the first 100 days of this new government, and we need to be able to see what we can do today. And I would argue that the tobacco bill, however contentious it was, has been worked on, and it is now something that can be considered properly within the context of today's political environment even. And it is something that was worked on by different partners. If you were to work on mental health, mental health, I do not want to see in the first 100 days because that will not be a properly thought out uh, intervention. It will be something that is quick, intended to tick the box, move on to the next one. Mental health is an investment that needs to be made properly. We don't want to see a, a, the ribbon cutting of a new building for mental health center of excellence. They've done that already. They've done. Oh, they have. Uh, okay. So, you know, we don't want that. Because what we need are the people in that centre. We have not invested enough in more psychiatrists, psychologists, people who are able to uh, provide the kind of care, quality care that we expect for mental health. And we know mental health is a huge issue 
in this COVID-19 crisis period. And certainly more and more young people, especially we see, who are needing that kind of support. And we're not even talking about different diseases, you know, like specialties, uh, in terms of oncology, for example, where you need people who specialize in an area to be able to provide help. So for me, I would be honest about looking at what you can achieve within the first 100 days, see what kind of low-hanging fruits out there, put in the investment, talk to people, listen to people. This is very important because you can have your own ideas when you come into the office. But honestly, I would talk to the people in the Ministry of Health, but also to the other ministries and most importantly, the patients and, and, and patient groups who are going to be able to tell you exactly what can be done within that period and can be achieved. So don't look for uh, the longer term ones necessarily. Look for the stuff that you can be able to deliver. It's ready, oven ready, I would say. It's mm-hmm. oven ready. You can put it out and roll it within the next three months or so. Yeah, so George made a very good point about sort of what if somebody wants to come in and reinvent the wheel, right? And um, I Such think a KG, waste of time. Yeah, and, and KG tried to um, do something to sort of mitigate that by proposing a health commission. Um, that is we didn't see it happen, no. if I'm not mistaken, yeah, before his term ended. Um, do you think that perhaps this is something the minister should prioritise to in order to yeah. kick off those longer term? You know? So the, the interesting thing was in the previous uh, administration under the previous health minister, a lot of things were being proposed that were interesting that came not from him, but coming from people who have been in the sector for decades, from those who understand how it works, how it doesn't work, most importantly, but how to bring the country to the next level. It's not his idea. It's somebody else's idea. But the thing here is important for us to realise that we should be able to look at these ideas and, and provide them with the attention and merit that they deserve because they need to be adopted, regardless of whoever championed it in the past. And we need to be able to do this now because if we were to... You know, like we always do it, we start all over again, start the whole process. We are wasting time. We are in, for example, an aged care crisis. I'll give you an example. For aged care, we are just eight years away or seven years from 2030, where by the time we hit 2030, it is projected that at least one in 10 Malaysians will be 66 years of age or older which is around 15% of the total population. And it has been declared that Malaysia is ill-prepared for that moment and ill-prepared to provide the kind of care we would expect for a large group of people who are basically older and needing advanced care. So we need people who are able to do the job today, but most importantly, ideas that are oven-ready, able to be deployed immediately, and most importantly, relevant to the people who it's intended to Mm. Four, sorry. Yeah, so Pakatan had um, pretty specific ideas did, yeah. in their manifesto for aged care. Um, you know, I think Dato Sri Anwar Ibrahim yesterday in his first press conference did say manifestos are a statement of intent. Oh. Uh, we need to go past <laughs> yeah. the statement of intent, don't we? No, but it's good. Uh, I think compared to in the past where manifestos were not really considered uh, so-called the Bible for which you would refer to or the constitution that you would go back to basically hold them accountable to. I think it's a good tone to set that manifestos are declaration of intent, definitely, but they're also a list of pledges, 
uh, hopes, aspirations, but also where do you want to go in the next couple of years under the term of this administration? I think most of us who are working in the health sector, we should be able to be brave and say, well, the other manifestos had some good points too. Let's take some of that and put it in mm. and adopt that accordingly and not just be beholden to the Bakhtan Harfan uh, manifesto. But that manifesto had some really good points in them, especially when it came to aged care and also looking at how we can introduce healthcare reforms for the future, especially when we look at things like financing. So we need to be able to hold them accountable to what was pledged and see how we can operationalize. I would like to say, Shawit, that we shouldn't be the ones saying, oh, you didn't do this, you didn't do that. You, uh, you know, like a couple of years from now, you say, oh, you promised, but you didn't deliver. No, let's come in with a positive approach by saying, you promised this, let's work together to see how we can operationalize that, realize that so that it doesn't become an empty promise. Mm, yeah, We have a really good comment from a listener. For the new health minister, please look into capacity building, strengthening of existing primary care services and decentralisation of health care with better distribution of functioning clinic kesehatans and better coordination between facilities. And also make serious effort at improving the social determinants of health, investing upstream rather than disease-centric. Um, this is from my who also adds, um, ask the staff and provide what they need to care for the patients. You know, Shai, that last comment is spot on. And whoever comes in into the office or the health minister, I don't know whether it's going to be on Tuesday morning since Monday Chuti, right? Or the following week or whenever and finds her or his pencils on the table needs to come in with an attitude of wanting to listen. Not already with prescribed or predetermined, preconceived ideas of what health should be. First thing on the job is to listen, to consult, and to be able to work in partnerships with people uh, on the ground, including, and I would say this, even at the level of hospital, and it was mentioned there, KKs, right? Primary care. This is an area that has been neglected for quite a long time. There's so much focus on tertiary care at the hospital level, and not enough emphasis on, on uh, buff, uh, building up our primary care so that we can ensure that the first line for which people are able to get healthcare is going to be at the KK level or at the clinics and work in partnerships with GPs, for example. Mm. But that last point, which is to listen to the people who are on the front lines of healthcare and see what they need to help care for the patients and community and try to meet the needs that they've already identified. So you don't have to reinvent the wheel. Just ask them, what do you need so that you can do your job? They've got all the ideas already, right? Well, I'm sure. Well, definitely. Some of those ideas are very ambitious, jugatla, but it's all right. You need all nothing of them. Nothing wrong with ambition. Uh, yeah, yeah, there's nothing wrong because somebody will say that, oh, we cannot, cannot afford that. Oh, we can't do that. Or you think in the UK or, or US, that's too far for us. No, we should come in with what we aspire care to be and see how we can uh, work towards that goal and see what kind of gaps. But here's the thing, shall we? Partnership, I mentioned, partnership needs to be extended to all, including the private sector. Mm. You know, in the past, uh, health minister may have kept a little bit of an arm's length away from the private sector, but the COVID crisis has shown that when we work with the private sector, and I mean the uh, uh, GPs, the private hospitals, the pharmaceutical industry, the different uh, service providers and even those who are providing these 
uh, telehealth solutions, we can amplify the ability to cover and to deliver the kind of services that we need. All right. So keep your thoughts coming in, uh, just like Madiha has. Uh, you know, tell us what do you want to see the next health minister prioritize, and who do you think um, is a suitable candidate for the job? Uh, vacancies are now opened, aren't they? Uh, you can call <laughs> us at zero three double seven double three two nine hundred or WhatsApp us at zero one eight seven eight nine double eight double nine. A quick one, Azro, based on the idea of partnership that you've been talking about. Um, We've also recognised, and uh, our listener Madiha also pointed out, right? The social determinants yes. of health means that health doesn't just belong to the Ministry yep. of Health alone. We've talked about this a lot. We're looking at issues um, related to um, livelihoods, income generation, education, housing, uh, the environment. Um, do you think that the new makeup of this government that we have never seen the likes of before would lend itself to that kind of, you know, breaking out all those silos? This is an excellent question, uh, It one for which we have actually thought about quite a bit and think there needs to be a uh, change in the way we think at the different portfolios and distribution of, of responsibilities, uh, especially when it comes to the ministries. And aged care is a good example. Nobody wants to take care of aged care. You don't know who actually belongs, who this issue belongs to. Ministry of Health pushes the Ministry of Women, Family, Community Development. That ministry pushes it back to the Ministry of Health. And so you find the neglect is symptomatic of that. So if you look in other countries, health is not just a ministry by itself. It's also coexisting with the other aspects. And this is going back to the social determinants of health because care involves, the continuum of care includes the environment, not just about the delivery of clinical services or uh, doing procedures, or curing disease and so forth. It's also about the surroundings. And a good example of that is obviously uh, diseases like dengue and you know sexually transmitted diseases, reproductive health and so forth. So what, perhaps this is going to be an unpopular suggestion, Perhaps what could happen in this administration, seeing how the Prime Minister has promised to reduce the size of the cabinet, that there could be a minister who is in charge of two ministries. And in this case, could be the minister, uh, one minister to be in charge of both the Ministry of Health and the Ministry of Women, Family and Community Development. So that when we look at care, it is a continuum of care, not just one aspect, which is the health care. And we should be able to be uh, bold enough to try to do that. You can keep the name of the ministries, but the portfolio of that minister could have both of them. So uh, she or him could figure it out, but that's something that we would like to propose, that when we look at these solutions now, it's holistically. All right. Interesting thought. Um, do weigh in if you th agree with Azrol that we should create this, um, you know, a dual portfolio in a sense, uh, combining the responsibilities for health and also welfare and care uh, under the same minister. Or uh, what, what, what are your thoughts? What do you want to see the next health minister prioritise? We'll go for another quick break and come back to continue this conversation. You can call us at 0377332900, WhatsApp us at 0187898899 or tweet us at BFM Radio. We'll be sharing your thoughts with Azro Muhammad Khalid.
CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. And of course, my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, whom I'll be asking, what is his laundry list for the next <laughs> health ministry? It's probably a long one, <laughs> shall we? <laughs> so stay tuned to Health and Living, BFM 89.9. Good afternoon. Welcome back to Health and Living with me, T. Shaoik, and my co-host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist. Our guest for the Doctor in the House segment today is Azrul Mohamed Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy. We are discussing uh, the roles and the priorities for the next health minister. Of course, all eyes are on the next cabinet formation and we, uh, I guess, are wondering as well who would be concerned for this position. <laughs> we have a um, <laughs> message from a listener. My three choices for health minister are Dr. Zukifli, Dr. Zukifli, and Dr. Zukifli. <laughs> and uh, this is from uh, Madhavan, who also agrees with Azrul that one minister must have at least two portfolios. Um, that's an interesting thought there. Keep those coming in. Um, WhatsApp 018-789-8899. George. So earlier on, you said that, you know, it has more portfolio, <laughs> but uh, the newly minted Prime Minister actually wants to shrink the actual um, cabinet size itself. So it's contradicting. But I think the solution for that continuity of care is actually get the DG to take on a lot more roles. Okay, what do you think about that? Cannot, because cannot. that actually has a lot more continuity of care. No, the, the DG, uh, as it is described today, is a person who is a professional in the healthcare sector who is one that is a, a trained uh, medical professional who may or may not be able to understand the continuum of care beyond just his or her uh, understanding. And it's something that we need to ensure also, most importantly, accountability. And this, this is where there needs to be limits to the power of the Director General that do not overreach and extend into the realm of the Minister of Health. And... Today, it is too easy to say, oh, the DG should do all that. But actually, the responsibility is as an elected public official belonging to the Minister of Health. So and that we can hold them accountable. Accountable, yeah. And the, the, the Director General is a civil servant, a servant. And there's going to be political questions that need to be answered. And we can't realistically and... Uh, to be fair, you cannot ask a civil servant to be accountable for those. And, and these things include funding... Uh, issues as well as making, uh, you know, recommendations for uh, maybe dramatic changes in policy. Mm. These still need to be uh, belonging to the health minister, especially reforms. We have Saravan who has messaged in to say that he wishes MOH would digitalize patient records so that um, they can be easily accessible at your local clinic, your district GH and uh, other med medical facilities as well. Well, digital health uh, definitely has been a priority for, I think, the past, what, four or five uh, different Decades. governments? Yeah, Decades. Decades. Yeah. <laughs> well, let's just talk about it realistically. Like, I know uh, telehealth has been around since the 90s, but today the kind of telehealth that we expect is the same kind of telehealth that we, the, the telemedicine that we see uh, when you go to a private hospital where everything's digitalized, which means you can accelerate the ability to produce uh, the outcomes from sorry the outputs from your test <clears throat> fairly quickly, uh, for which in uh, public hospitals today we sometimes have to wait for weeks if not months to get. So that's going to have a multiplier and that requires substantial investment because a lot of our, our facilities still are dependent on pen and paper 
And I think one of the... Like you said, the health minister looking for his pencils when he comes into office. But think about one of the visits that uh, uh, KJ uh, did when he was health minister. He went to, I think, uh, KK. And one of the photos that was showing was him in the storeroom. There was files of, of patient files, like from... From ceiling to, 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 to floor. From floor to ceiling and the huge room, you know, so we need to be able to deal with that. And it's going to be a nightmare just to digitalize that room, honestly. But yeah. there you go. George. Well, that is a fantastic example. Don't you think the generation, generations of all these health ministers, they will have all their visions, how to deal with aged care, how to deal with all these things. But the fundamentals of our infrastructure is not even mm. sorted out. And exactly. every time it's brushed under the carpet. How do we solve that problem as well? You know, this is a very important point. Is you it know? a money problem? It is Yes, money, but also uh, it's also political will. Uh, many a times, this is why health needs to be looked at as an investment. What you're investing today, sometimes you only see the results of maybe a couple of years down or even five years down or 10 years down. And when you look at the development and operational budget for the Ministry of Health, you know, we celebrate every time there's an increase in the budget. In fact, uh, the Budget 2023 that was tabled uh, a month or so ago. It feels like a, uh, eons ago, mm-hmm. right? It's a like lifetime. Um, if it gets passed, uh, in, if it gets tabled and passed in Parliament, it represents a significant increase of more than 11% uh, compared to the previous budget. Now, we're all happy about increases in, in budget, but what happens is, is that money goes to the operational side of the uh, uh, expenditure, whereas development still is a minuscule uh, amount and it is very much dwarfed by it. Maybe around 80% of the money, of 70 to 80% of the money goes to operations, but very little in terms of development. What you're mentioning, George, is about development. We need to invest in the infrastructure. So we have teething problems that medical doctors, uh, contract medical doctors, for example, you want to solve that, you've got to swing money from that into the operational aspect again. So, yes, shall we? A major part of that is how we look at the budget and how much money is allocated because we know we're under uh, under investing on health and we should be able to uh, increase it. And this is something that the new government needs to be looking into seriously because we can't address some of those basic problems, those fundamental problems that George is pointing out, if we don't invest in the infrastructure itself, for which some of it is more than 100 years old. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, just very quickly, a few messages from our listeners. Dina sent, him, sent in a WhatsApp audio voice note, which I'm sorry, Dina, I can't seem to play it, but I'll read it out. I think it's good to consolidate many ministries to fewer ones. It reduces redundancies and overlapping of roles. If the minister of uh, needs help, we should appoint a deputy to help him. <laughs> I hope more than one deputy. <laughs> <laughs> which, who play their roles, by the way, are not just nominal deputies. Uh, a couple of messages that agree with the idea of uh, digitalizing um, the medical records. Um, somebody who says, I would like to add on that health data should not be held by private companies, mm. should have a digital department that builds apps in-house. And I think that alludes to the MySajatra um, issues. Margaret is saying, uh, have a centralized health database of patient records. Um, and this is really important for patients, right? Because they need wh- whoever is the physician they're seeing to immediately be able to know what 
is their medical history, exactly. what meds they're on, allergies. Wherever any, they go. Yeah, any warning signs from previous blood tests, for example, not you have to cut uh, your medical files around. Aaron is saying improve the service at Clinic Kesehatan, very congested and uh, long delays. Sharil um, says, oh, interesting one from Sharil. Maybe we need to appoint a senator for ministers, considering that the MPs also have to take care of their constituencies. No more That's their job, no? No, no, no. no. <laughs> let's, let's stop that. I mean, uh, in fact, the priority right now is to reduce the size of the cabinet. So that means the people in cabinet must be appointed uh, elected uh, uh, members elected, of parliament, yes. you know, and we should stop that practice as much as, as, as best as we can. Uh, but I wanted to just refer back to the issue of uh, personal rec- uh, medical records, uh, shall we? which is a very important point uh, because a lot of people are concerned about the integrity as well as security of medical records and they don't want that kind of information to be out there. Uh, you know, one thing that needs to be reformed is how we treat and look at uh, patient medical records. It has been emphasised many times that patient records belong to the government, not to the patient, but to the government. And therefore, when you want to access your own records, it involves a lengthy process, which very often, I suspect, is intended to discourage you from trying to get that information. And you I need think referral, you need letters. You need letters. Mm. takes three months, three weeks, uh, and, uh, and a certain amount of bureaucratic hassle to get. Whereas in a private healthcare facility, you can get your records fairly quickly and easily. And this is something that we need to reform. Because we need that kind of information to better educate uh, the patient, but also their family members concerning the, their own healthcare. And if we're expecting people to be able to take better ownership over their own health, surely their own medical records, should, they should be able to access. Starting point. Yeah. yeah. So honestly, uh, this is one particular point that needs to be reformed because it is, I think, uh, incredible to think that your own medical record belongs to the state and not to you. Yeah. George. Well, Azro, I want to know how much role do you play and also NGOs play, like, you know, for Galen Centre, actually advising the health ministers and then also how much access do you have to him or her? Well, it's quite presumptuous to assume that we have access <laughs> because we, we, we don't think we, we will naturally have access. We can only hope at this point of time, because we don't know who that person is, but also uh, uh, it, who that person is going to be, but also, uh, most importantly, how uh, the government is going to treat the voices of civil society, think tanks. Exactly. Uh, you know, patient we were talking groups. about listening, yeah, right? We talk on. about listening. And that's why I emphasize that from the very beginning, George. It needs to be able to come in with an open mind, but most importantly, an attitude that is different from in the past. You know, we saw some changes, positive changes in Dr. Zulkifli's time and, and, and KJ's time. And we hope that this will continue on because in order for reforms to be implemented that are relevant for patients, uh, caregivers, uh, families and communities, it needs to come from the bottom up, not top down. And this is something that we need to shift in terms of changing attitudes. But you know, uh, George, I'm really hoping that uh, one of the first things that, that the new health minister will be able to do is, is to convene town halls with different committees at the district and state level to find out what is needed for uh, 
the improvement of care in those uh, locations because it's different for different mm. locations, different states. This one size, a one size fits all approach must stop, you know, and it cannot be prescribed from Putrajaya. So one of the things that we're also hoping to see, uh, and you'd be interested to hear this, George, is we hear that East Malaysia needs more autonomy over their own healthcare. They need to be able to manage their resources, decides how many doctors build what hospitals and, and clinics that they should have in, in East Malaysia because they know best the, the, the landscape and they know what the needs are. And we cannot have that prescribed again from Putrajaya. So we're hoping that uh, the incoming health minister and, and uh, her or his team will be able to open up to, uh, you know, the, of course, Malaysian Medical Association, the different uh, groups like NCSM, National Cancer Society of Malaysia, uh, and of course, think tanks like ourselves, the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy, to be able to have a seat at the table to talk about what what is needed, but also how we can be part of this reform process. And I'm hoping George gets a seat at the table as well, because there's a lot of areas that are neglected in his field of specialty there. Any thoughts, George? What's what's your laundry list for the next minister? My laundry list is very easy. It's money, money, money. <laughs> <Yo>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Well, at the end of the day, all this boils down to years of underinvestment. And then I think at the end, you know, it's just like what um, Azra was talking about. It's just like um, in, it's years of repairing all these cracks. And then it probably just need to start with um, changing priority and then spending more proportional GDP on, on the actual uh, healthcare itself, right? Yeah, I mean, and, and spend I think, it wisely. Yes, yeah, spend it wisely because, um, you know, just to add a bit of context for that, Madi messaged in to say that what we need to implement is good governance and zero leakages. So, you know, more money. Um, spent strategically as well. Madiha is also saying, you know, basic health literacy taught in schools. Well, you know, what is health literacy? You know, and this is something that uh, the National Health Mobility Survey uh, uh, 2019 uh, found that a third of Malaysians have poor health literacy or are health illiterate, meaning they do not understand the information that's being conveyed to them. They don't see how that information is relevant to them and most importantly they don't understand how with that information they need to change their behavior and this is something that we saw during the COVID crisis that we were essentially uh, penalizing people punishing people for not adhering to COVID-19 protocols when they don't fully understand or appreciate why it was necessary and health literacy is fundamental to many of the problems we face like treatment adherence uh, like we complain about uh, p uh, patients with diabetes not uh, compliant, mm -hmm. uh, patients with different diseases that require a strict regime of compliance to their uh, treatment are not, and therefore uh, causing things like antimicrobial resistance, uh, treatment failure, and so forth. It all boils back down to improving health literacy. Maybe it will start in school, but we first need to understand what is health literacy. I actually disagree. Starts, yeah. I actually from, disagree no. about it being thrown to the education system. No, you know? it's it, it probably think, not from yeah. the family even. Yes, right? exactly. Yeah. George. Well, I I agree that health literacy um, is an issue, but I think it's it's not just matter of um, you know from school. I think it's a lifelong process of learning because awareness and also the changes in. Um, 
the uh, technology in medicine. It is just for all of us, not just the doctors. It's you have to keep updated, and then that's the reason why show like this and also constantly looking out for uh, health news is really crucially important. And I think for me, that lifelong learning of finding out more about your own body, about how um, how healthcare is functioning, is is crucial. All right. Unfortunately, we have to wrap up this conversation. Uh, I'll just get final thoughts from each of you, I think. Um, I know, Azro, you've already talked about priorities in the first 100 days, but um, I guess just, you know, if you have the ear of um, whoever's going to be... If you have the ear of the Prime Minister and can influence the kind of candidate or or person who will be appointed to the portfolio, what would you want to say? Well, I would say that... uh this is for the portfolio, right? Yeah. First of all, uh, consider that merging of uh, of the two responsibilities for one uh, uh, minister. Second is think out the box. Uh, we're not looking necessarily at a uh, uh, wise old man to guide the, the discussion. We need people who are able to be forward-looking, looking at the next uh, generation of Malaysian healthcare, but also to rely upon a, a group of people to help advise and to not look at one person and expect to solve everything. I feel bad for Dr. Zul. You know, I thought Dr. Zul was going to be uh, retiring already in politics. He was called back. And, you know, he is one of the persons for which uh, a health minister is modelled after, as we understand. Yeah. And for him, he can con- definitely contribute. But, you know, we need to consider uh, other options as well for... Uh, the role of health minister and one for which, and this is a really tough one, which is able to work with different parties, different uh, clashing, strong personalities and different agendas. So, you know, if the uh, prime minister is considering who to pick, uh, I would also want someone who is able to look at aged care as a priority as well. Because funny enough, when you look at how many aged individuals were in parliament, in Mm -hmm. cabinet, mostly average age was above 55 to 67, none of them cared about age care, even though they were already needing that level of care, senior care themselves. So we need someone who's able to look at new emerging issues and most importantly, agile at looking at emerging, emerging threats such as COVID-19, for which COVID-19 is not the last, l- last of it. We mm-hmm. will see future pandemics and we need someone who's going to be able to be quick on their feet, able to come up with solutions, most importantly, not uh, have preconceived notions of what health should be. They should be able to listen to everyone, consult and decide, and most importantly, work in partnerships. And George, whisper into Datuk Sri Anwar Ibrahim's ear, who do you want for health minister? <laughs> <laughs> you know, early on you asked Azru the question he didn't answer, you know, you know what are the strengths and weaknesses of the three ministers? Whoever the next person's gonna be, I think you're absolutely right that you know uh, have a big shoe to fill because I think the last um, health minister had done a brilliant job. Obviously, you know, see us through um, all the vaccination, everything, and then I think whatever the next minister does, it really ought to bring all this continuity of care rather than having all these little projects that's uh, you know in the past that has gone to the grave. And really think that is really the key to sustain a good, long-lasting health policy for the health of the nation. Nobody wants to answer my questions, you know, about weaknesses. 
No, because, I mean, <laughs> I mean they, they all had their individual strengths. And I'm hoping that some of those great ideas that Dr. Zul left un, 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 unfinished, mm. that he was doing when he was health minister, is able to be brought in this time forward. And same thing with, uh, with Anababa. And Kyrie Jamal. Yes. All right. Thank you so much for sharing your thoughts uh, with us today. And to all of you, um, you know, I, we, we all have our eyes on the cabinet lineup and we'll be continuing to update you um, as the days go by. I've been speaking with my co host, Dr. George Lee, consultant urologist, and Azro Mohammad Khalib, CEO of the Galen Centre for Health and Social Policy, right here on Health and Living, BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.